You are listening to The Court Leader's Advantage, a podcast series for court professionals and by court professionals. Brought to you in cooperation with NACOM, the National Association for Court Management. The ransomware attack had shut our courts down, the sheriff's department down, all the county functions. It hit the complete system, our computer software and everything for the whole county. So we were kind of at the mercy then of the, of the ransomware. We would not have internet, we would not have email, we would not, but we were uh, completely down. We didn't have any way to get in our computers at all. On Friday, March 1st, Jackson County, Georgia, was uneasy about a possible threat. The threat of severe thunderstorms due over the weekend. What many Jackson County citizens didn't know was that a far more serious threat had already come calling. Calling on county government. The county's computer systems had been attacked by a ransomware virus known as RIAC. The attack took down all county department systems, including law enforcement and email. The sheriff's office had to revert to booking arrestees on paper. Once the RIAC ransomware gets into a system, it spreads from computer to computer. It encrypts files along the way with an unbreakable code. Try to access the data, and it displays a ransom note. Refuse to pay, and the files stay locked forever. Ransomware attacks on municipal governments are becoming commonplace. Atlanta, Georgia. Albany, New York. Del Rio, Texas, and Lake County, Florida have all been victims. Most recently, the Georgia Administrative Office of the Courts was hit with a ransomware attack. How do these attacks happen? How can we prevent them in the future? And what can we learn from our fellow court administrators and the attacks they've had to endure? I'm Pete Kiefer, and welcome to the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. I'm joined today by Rashida Davis, Court Administrator with the Atlanta Municipal Court. Welcome, Rashida. Thank you for having me, Peter. I'm so excited to participate in this dialogue. Also joining us today is Stephen Nevels, Trial Court Administrator with the Piedmont Judicial Circuit in Jackson County, Georgia. Welcome to you, Stephen. Thanks, Pete. Uh, appreciate you including me in this, in this podcast. Stephen, let me start with you. When did you first learn about the ransomware attack, and how did it affect your computer system? I first got a uh, received a phone call from the county manager. He was contacting all of the department heads for the Jackson County, which I'm the department head for the, the courts, the superior courts and the other courts in our building. And he contacted me at home, believe it or not, and informed me of what was going on and what had happened. And that was on a Sunday, I believe around March 2nd, I believe it was. Now, Rashida, Atlanta was hit by the Sam Sam ransomware. When did that occur, and how did your court cope with the attack? The ransomware incident occurred on March 22nd. I think that date stands out for most folks here in the city. It is a date that we cannot forget. On that day, we noticed that there were some of our system was not operating as it typically would function. Uh, We didn't have access to our data and our documents. So upon noticing that, we notified our IT department 
that there was something going on in our system. I would like to follow up on this, this question sure. too. Um, once I was notified, we were completely shut down. The ransomware attack had shut our courts down, the sheriff's department down, all the county functions. It hit the complete system, our computer software and everything for the whole county. So we were kind of at the mercy then of the, of the ransomware, the malware. When I was contacted by the county manager, we were informed that we would not have internet, we would not have email, would not, of course, you know, that kind of cripples you in the operation, your daily work operation. There was an emergency meeting that Monday morning with all department heads over discussions that had already occurred. The FBI and Homeland Security were called in immediately. I'll cover some more of that later on in another question. But we were uh, completely down. We didn't have any way to get in our computers at all. Now, speaking as someone who has never been through a ransomware attack, when your employees turned on their desktop computers, what did their screens actually say? Well, the screens would say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, repeatedly, and that was the only thing that was displayed. Also, like your files, that would be the name of your file. And the interesting thing is the municipal court employees were actually the first to notice that our network had been impacted. Most of our employees report fairly early in the morning. Some of these folks report at 4 a.m., and they were the first to notify our IT department that there was something weird going on in our system. So hats off to our employees here for recognizing the signs of a virus and notifying our IT department. We didn't really have anything on our screen on ours, Pete. It was the, our IT director and his department had already they received it actually on a computer at the sheriff's department, a message that came across. I'm not sure exactly what it said, but that's when they immediately contacted the sheriff and got a contact number for the FBI in Atlanta to contact them about what was going on. Stephen, you mentioned that there had been indications that the hackers had been rummaging around in the computer system for maybe two weeks before the attack. What were the signs? What we experienced, in fact, I, my judicial assistant, had ex- experienced it already. Slow speed, you know, on the computer as far as trying to get things to print. There were things popping up, a couple of things that she thought it was part of Google or something, but it was really, the system was really, everybody kept calling IT saying, Our, my computer is really slow. They just, you know, later on, of course, when it happened, they pretty much linked that back to They were already fishing, trying to get into our network. Stephen, reports are that Jackson County paid a $400,000 ransom in Bitcoin to the hackers. How did the county come up with that much Bitcoin? Well, they uh, once the FBI and uh, Homeland Security folks from Atlanta came in immediately, they they had the contacts and information for them to work with a, a company dealing with cybersecurity issues and dealing or had experience with payments on Bitcoin and that they worked with them immediately on that. And I understand they pulled the actual funds from, you know, reserves because that was about the only place they could pull it from. But they they did get a lot of, you know, assistance from the FBI and Homeland Security on to take care of that. Rashida, how did your staff hold up during the crisis? Well, our staff, of course, are the real MVPs. They were able to be flexible and innovative. 
and we're really willing to adapt, right? You really don't realize or recognize how often or how important technology is to your day-to-day -day experience. We use our computers for everything. We communicate through computers, right, sending emails out. Um, and so we really had to get back to the basics of core operation, right, a strictly paper-based system. Stephen, I read that county agencies had to revert to handling all transactions on paper forms. How long did that last, and what did your staff have to do to revert to paper? It affected the, all, all departments, but in the courts it affected us. Uh, and, you know, some things we still had on paper as far as uh, you know, certain things like TPOs, walk-in, uh, you know, protective orders and things like that. But it affected the clerk of court probably the hardest. And she had to revert back to receiving everything filed on paper and creating a few extra files and keeping up with documents um, the old-fashioned way. <laughs> and um, her staff had to work some extra time for sure to, to cover all those procedures that they had to put back in place. She did not act, her staff and clerk of court did not have access to the case management system either, of course, and that that made everything go back to, you know, filing the old-fashioned way and keeping up with records the old, the old way. So it, it, it definitely involved a lot of extra work and extra overtime. Um, it, went, it went on for almost four weeks before we were able to get um, the um, case management system back up operating we had to work with the software company Icon to get that. Also, they were very helpful in trying to get us back up and running. Fortunately, we had um, e-filing systems, so a lot of the stuff that we were able to still accept e-filing as a company separated from the um, from our servers and everything. So that that was a that was a help. But they just stored everything until later on we were able to um, get back up and running. Now they're feeding the documents back the normal way. But it did definitely created a uh, brought us back in time a little bit because we're we don't you don't recognize you don't figure out how much you're addicted to your computers and all the things you do on a daily basis you're kind of crippled without them that's for sure. So e-filing was on a separate system. Did you have to put together paper court files? E-filing was on a separate system called Keach Court. But the, everything else came in. It had come in hard copy, and, and we were able to use our copy machines, but that was about it. We couldn't even get into the system at all to enter anything in. So we went a little over four weeks before we could even start doing data entry again. It completely shut down everything. I can cover a little bit more about what happened once, it, once that malware got in there. Unfortunately, I'll cover what we recommend you counties and cities and state and everybody should, and a lot of them already have it in place, but you definitely need an off-site backup on your data. Both Rashida and Stevens' courts faced massive operational challenges. We'll learn more about how they coped right after this short break. Hi, I'm TJ Bement, court administrator in Georgia. I've been a longtime member of NACOM for many years. One of the best things a colleague of mine recommended was to get involved in the National Association for Court Management. 
After nearly 20 years as a member, the last several of which have been an officer, I can tell you what I have learned from NACOM and through colleagues that I've met has been invaluable. Please take a moment to join NACOM and get involved, whether it's watching our resources and videos online, attending a conference, or just networking with colleagues. Trust me, it will be worth it. We're back with Rashida Davis and Stephen Nevels talking about ransomware. Rashida, had your court developed an emergency response plan or a continuity of operations plan before the ransomware attack? Yes. The city of Atlanta has their own coup or, you know, emergency action plan. Our um, court has an emergency action plan. Typically, we use those plans for, like, power outages or failures or for whatever reason, there is like a network error, we're not able to access the database. So we had a plan in place. It's just, I don't think we anticipated that we would need a plan this long term, because the event really lasted or impacted about nine weeks, where we were not able to access our database. But luckily, it wasn't compromised. And we developed a workaround so that we could still take in cases, handle them, get them resolved and get them closed out. Did staff have to relearn how to manually accept payments at the front counter? Well, luckily we had a, a great vendor who worked with us to get that set up. And so we were able to start accepting payments fairly quickly. And of course, uh, cash always works. So we were able to do that as well. Now, I've spoken with other court administrators who have gone through crises. One thing most say is that they had to have backup plans for their backup plans. Rashida, did you have to improvise very much during the crisis? Yes, we did. (laughs) I agree. I wholeheartedly agree. You have a backup plan to your backup to another backup. I mean, you really do need to think long term, like what happens if these things are not available to us, right? A lot of people use phones that are connected to the Internet and, you know, you need Internet to send out emails. And how are we going to communicate information? So, These are all things that you typically do electronically, and you have to think of ways to now capture that in real form. How are we going to print off documents and plea forms? How are we going to get people to come into court and and resolve their cases? Stephen, how about your court? Did you have an emergency response plan, and did you have to improvise? Well, the courts on our side, we, we thought we did, but the IT director did not really have a emergency response plan dealing with malware. They had some plans in place working with the sheriff's department and all the departments concerning what to do in case you have a hurricane or tornado and and more weather-related emergency situations and not this. And it's definitely been a major learning experience for our IT director and his, his department and the county manager. Fortunately, they've been going through a lot. One of those things you don't really want to learn those kind of lessons at this time, but they're learning a lot from it. Now they're in the middle of implementing a lot of things, putting things in place. It also winds up costing you a lot more money when you're having to do it this way, and they're working with Georgia Tech Authority, also on dealing with cybersecurity issues and putting things in place to try to prevent this from happening again. The answer is short. No, there really was not a a good emergency response plan in place to handle malware. 
Has the FBI made any progress on determining who was behind the attack and getting the county's money back? We were told in a meeting, well, a few weeks ago by the FBI and Homeland Security that the FBI did say they'd link it back to an area in Russia. They know it's Russian related and everything, but they didn't, they have not made any progress on getting the money back. Not, not at this date. Rashida, now I don't want you to reveal anything confidential, but can you tell us about any specific changes you've made since the attack to better safeguard your computer systems? Yes. <laughs> well, you know, without revealing too much, we are using both locally based um, servers and cloud-based servers, right? So a backup to our backup. We have implemented several variations of training and education, how to prevent breaches and how to recognize spam email and phishing emails and how to appropriately notify our IT department so they can stop that cycle of getting that email opened and or forwarded. Also, don't click on the wrong, the wrong things. So I think those are probably the most important takeaways that we have learned and kind of improved upon. Rashida, Stephen, the accounts that you've both told us are overwhelming. But let's go back to the question we asked at the beginning of the podcast. What advice would you give to other court administrators from around the country? We've learned a lot. Oh, our county manager and ID department and our county commissioners have all learned quite a bit from this experience. One thing we are putting in place is getting backup systems away from the building. In other words, you know, outsourcing it to getting a backup system away from have the data protected in another location, which should have been done, but it's too late now to try over spilt milk. But procedures are being put in place in more than one location, too. The clerk of court has, the clerk's authority in Georgia has also a backup for each clerk. And so the clerk's going to have her data, daily data that she, all the stuff she enters in and everything will be posted on that. And it's free of cost to, to them because of their clerk's authority set up and how they've got it uh, implemented. And so she'll have that backup also. Our data is going to be backed up off site in two different places. The other thing is they're going to train employees to kind of make them more aware of what to look for and not, what not to do if you get an email, you know, phishing for this. And because a lot of those emails look just like, a, you know, Wells Fargo Bank or SunTrust Bank or other banks. It's amazing how they get in there and able to make them look so official. And a lot of people don't realize that. So training on those issues is going to be mandatory for all employees in Jackson County which I think is fantastic to do that and make it just make everybody more aware and everyone it'll be they'll have to attend these classes. There's gonna there's been other firewall uh, software things put in place. I mentioned earlier that we've brought in Georgia Tech Authority to work with us since there's they've got a lot of folks on staff that are more experts in the cybersecurity area. And from my understanding, one of the recommendations by the FBI and Homeland Security is to actually employ a full-time cybersecurity person separate from your network administration, separate from your IT director, and have that individual focus on cybersecurity matters for the, you know, that's their full-time job. And I think we're looking at doing that also because we're living in a different world now. Rashida, what advice would you give to other court administrators from around the country? My first piece of advice would be 
to plan for the worst, right? Um, what does that look like? Look at a short-term plan to get through whatever incident you are, may be experiencing and a long-term plan. Um, you also need to have um, real-time evaluation of how things are going. How are we able to meet these daily metrics? Are we able to process cases efficiently? What do we need to do differently? Also, communication. How are we communicating not only to our internal staff, but how are we communicating to the public? What resources that do we have that are available to us to make sure that everybody knows um, what's going on, what we're capable of doing, and how to handle their stuff moving forward? Uh, Pete, I want to follow up, too, is that one thing I recommend is if this happens to your county or your operation, your state government, city government, or county government, the, I'd immediately contact, a little bit of common sense, I'd immediately contact the FBI and Homeland Security and let them get involved. They offer a lot of services to help, and they're, they're not, they don't cost anything to your county. So they're free services, and these guys are doing it for a living every day. They're, they're experts at it. They've got some really good contacts with other companies, like a company out in Oregon that they, they work with. They work with several of them around the country probably around the world, but they they offer a lot of help, and uh, I would highly recommend taking them up on their offer. I want to thank Rashida and Stephen today for sharing their experiences and insights with us. Your descriptions are, at the same time, both intimidating and instructive. We can all learn from what you had to go through. The specter of ransomware is only going to increase nationally in the years to come. Rashida? Thanks for talking with us today. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Any opportunity we can have to, to let others know and learn from our experience, I think is just a valuable tool. And so thank you so much for having us here today. Stephen, I'm grateful for you sharing your thoughts. Thank you, Pete. Thanks for inviting me. Now, before we wrap up today's podcast, we have our segment where we answer listener questions. We have a question submitted by a listener about the June episode on artificial intelligence. Here to ask that question is our listener, Jeff Barlow. And here to respond, we have back Ivy Ashton, who is one of our guests on the June episode. So, Jeff, what's your question? Thank you, Peter, and thank you, Ivy. Every person's knowledge and experiences affect how he or she reaches conclusions. When presented with the same facts, a person who's raised in a strictly religious family can easily come to a very different conclusion than one raised in a household with a different worldview. We sometimes refer to these differences as prejudices. Right now, there aren't many standards or guidelines concerning the control of the learning data sets used to teach machines. So it's entirely conceivable that, for example, one car's artificial intelligence may be more risk averse than another. Can you take a shot at forecasting some of the things society will want to develop standards and guidelines for? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. That's a that's a great question. And I think it's it's always a little bit challenging to understand how we're going to govern all of this, say, in five years or 10 years. I, I think the way I would respond to it, though, is we can learn a lot from just our past in terms of how we've typically responded to anything like this. And I would offer that there are different mechanisms that are going to control that. Like, for instance, some of this could be controlled by contract. When you sign up to use a service, the terms and conditions of the contract may outline 
you know, some of the responsibilities and liabilities of the company. And to me, that's important because the question you're asking is who ultimately might be liable if the car, in your example, made a decision that impacted somebody either by causing them injury or even death, who would be liable for that? And that may work out through some type of contract. It could also work out through, uh, obviously, local laws will define who can be reliable. You can't contract around liability as it's set forth in the law. But really, the place where I'm seeing the most work happening around this is in terms of creating an international standard. So like, for instance, if you, if you understood or if you looked at how cell phone technology took off around the world, there are different standards that cell phones can use. And when Qualcomm created the standard that is used now, it created a huge advantage in the marketplace and created actually a huge company out of it. So if you look at where the standards are being set, I know there, there's this kind of arms race right now between China and the United States around artificial intelligence. And last year, China put out a really important document that outlined some of the standards that they that they are setting out. And that report was done by the government, the industry, and academia. And then the U.S. of course responded and. The Trump administration signed an executive order that set forth that we too are going to go in that direction. And the National Institute of Standards and Technology put out a proposed plan that outlines some of the, the metrics and the standards that are going to be used for around things like accuracy and trustworthiness and bias of AI systems. And so we're starting to see this actually starting to play out in the marketplace. And the reason why I wanted to talk about standards is because this is actually an international problem. AI will touch way beyond state borders or country borders. It's really a big international aspect to what it's doing. So human decision-making has bias and, and prejudice embedded in it, and we don't really have a way to deal with that other than for review by some other entity like an appeals court or the Supreme Court or something that could look for that. But we have you know, lots of things in, in our society right now where humans are making decisions. And that kind of leads me to my second point, which is your question presumes that the machines are actually making decisions and that those decisions then lead to something else. The car example is a great example. That example is often used when talking about ethics and morality around autonomous cars. Like common example is if a car has to make a choice between hitting a child that stepped out into the street to chase a ball or swerving and hitting a group of elderly pedestrians walking down the sidewalk, presumably causing death or injury to either, which one should it choose? And again, from a human perspective, we can debate this on a moral level. There are different frameworks to look at you know, how you might solve that problem. The, the car isn't necessarily programmed to make one decision over another, although I think a lot of these frameworks are looking at those very issues. It's just, see, I think it's figuring out what its options are as it, as it swerves to do one thing or the other. So hopefully that adds a little bit more light to it as well. Our thanks to both Jeff and Ivy for coming on the podcast today. This has been the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. If you have a question about this or any of the podcast episodes, email us at podcast at nakemnet.org. In most cases, we'll answer your question at the end of a future podcast. And be sure to catch next month's episode on high-profile trials.
I'm Pete Kiefer, and thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us today. The Court Leader's Advantage is a regular podcast series on courts and court administration. Look for new episodes the third Thursday of each month. Today's podcast will be available on our website, on Facebook, on iTunes, and on Twitter. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future podcasts, email us. Our address is podcast. that's all one word, at nakemnet.org. I'm Pete Kiefer, and on behalf of our guests and the National Association for Court Management, have a great day. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individual presenters. They do not necessarily represent the position of the National Association for Court Management.